Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. First under the legal innovation scene in 2018 with her incredible thinking and writing on change in the industry. And she quickly became known for her unique take on visual storytelling with data and yes, emoji. She's a millennial in every sense of the word. Before that, I had the pleasure of working with Jay at Cypher for six years, where she guided us in communications, strategy, and data analytics. Today, Jay runs a market insights company called Six Parsecs serves as an advisor to a number of legal tech companies and is a self-described super temp. Listen in to today's podcast to learn why she picked the company she's working with, why she decided not to be a lawyer, and what's next in her interesting and fabulous career. I hope you enjoy it. Jay, you've carved out sort of this amazingly unique role in the legal industry. You wrote a recent article about your career and about some of the personal steps you've taken in deconstructing. I yep. guess we, sh- we should start by letting everybody know what's your current venture. What, tell us a little bit about Six Parsecs and what it's doing. Yeah, so um, I would like to keep that short, but I'm probably going to go on for a bit because I'm doing a little of this, a little of that. So Six Parsecs itself will stay uh, primarily a research and insights business. So this year, what I'm doing is closed door executive briefings. Uh, mainly for law firms and uh, investor groups, investors that are interested in new business models and service delivery and uh, legal tech companies. But primarily, Six Parsecs will will function as a research engine. So not only desk research with data analysis, but also field research that will include things like interviews. You know, kind of leveraging the the networks that I have to get people's perspectives on how they're seeing the market, how how they're experiencing the change in our industry. So it's a research and insights business. Outside of Six Parsecs, I have a number of activities that I'm um, pursuing. Legal Tech Advisory. So I did announce the, the four startups that I have a relationship with. LegalMation, which is an AI suite of AI tools uh, for litigation. Rain and Court, which is going to build the, the future paradigm of how law firms actually buy and try and buy and deploy legal technology. Very, very exciting venture. Um, Daytona, which is a brand new tech company that is really focused on helping legal businesses get more insight and make better decisions using data. And LexFusion, which is a very interesting collective of legal tech companies and, and new service providers in the industry that are going to market together. So that's led by Joe Borstein and Paul Stroka, who were an amazing sales team, consultative sales team at Pangea 3 back when they were with Thomson Reuters and then later at EY Law. So they really, across this portfolio of companies, I think that I'm going to get really good insight into what's actually happening, what change is actually happening in the industry. So I'm really, really excited about that. And then I have some other stuff that I'm trying to cook up, but more details on that later. Watch the space. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff. And you've had the most interesting journey getting there. And you, you, you talked from parents who are immigrants from Korea to, as you described it in the article. Uh, and by the way, for those of you that want to read more of your writing, go to Legal Evolution, Bill Henderson's blog. You find plenty of quality stuff to get into with Jay. But you talk a little bit about drifting a little bit early on 
and your experience as the daughter of immigrants. How did that period sort of inform your decision? But then you said you made a conscious decision to go into the business side of law. Walk yeah. us a little bit about how, how did all that come about? What, how did your background inform that decision? I think, you know, stories are obviously easier to tell in retrospect. I think, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So now looking back at some of the choices I made, I think that it's easier for me to make sense of them now. So I read this fascinating book called Range. If you haven't read it, I, I strongly recommend it. It is really about, you know, people who go on to achieve success and have, have immense interesting experiences in their career. If you go back and look at their early years, there are a number of people who tried and then left a number of different pursuits. So even within fields like musicians who specialize later as opposed to earlier, artists who wandered a lot across, you know, different styles, athletes who tried a lot of different sports. So there's different styles and pathways of, of choosing what you're doing and a better understanding what you're good at. So I think, you know, through that lens, I feel incredibly lucky because it was not at all intentional. Like, I think the stuff that I did very early on, like even, you know, I, I think I got my first like W-2 job. I secured that job when I was like 15 and a half. And then I've been working every almost entirely consistently since I was 16. So I, I kind of look at all those experiences and I think that all of them conspired to help me in some way, but it really did help me focus more once I did decide that I was going to, you know, specialize in the business of law. But I, I think that the period of wandering and experimentation is important, even though it was many times out of necessity. I, I went where I thought I could excel, where I thought I could make money. Um, as a teenager throughout college in my 20s, I, I kind of did what I thought I was good at, but then by stretching myself in, in different ways, I learned more about what I'm good at. But really, I think the story gets the most interesting the day I walk into Cypher Shah. I, I think I, I wrote that in the blog post, and I think so much of that is due to the cultural work that you and the, the leadership of the firm had done for decades. You know, I always think that I owe such a debt of gratitude, not only to you, but to the organization and, and everybody, not just leadership, but really everybody who was of the firm, who grew up in the firm with, with a specific ethos. And I think it's not just my story, but if you look at some of the folks that have come through Cypher, not just the lawyers, but the, the allied professionals who were privileged enough to kind of experience this culture I'm talking about, I mean, they are in amazing positions, have doing amazing work all across the industry. So if you remember Andrew Medeiros, who was a solution architect, yeah, he's now um, director of innovation at Traum and Pepper, Amani Smathers, and you know she was such such a high potential talent even early on. She was she fabulous, had, absolutely. Yes, yes, amazing. You remember her talk at Reinvent Law seven or eight years ago? She was the first person to kind of talk about the T-shaped lawyer. Yeah, she's done amazing work across the industry. Allison Silver, I think, is now head of legal ops at Zoom. And, you know, of course, Rob Sconey, Josh Kubicki, Kim Craig, they're all doing amazing work with different organizations across the industry. So I think that, you know, the story of Cyfarth and, and my story there, I think there's a natural intersection because one thing that Kim Craig, Don Oral, who's head of head of marketing at Cyfarth for um, 
uh, those of you don't, don't know, the three of us have something in common, which is that we all started in the industry as, as legal secretaries. And, and that is something that we did talk about. And that gave us, you know, I think a heightened sense of empathy for the lawyers in their day to day. But really, I think it's amazing that sci-fi is and has always been a place where a legal secretary, somebody who's a legal secretary today, could be something else, could grow into other things, could find career pathways. So I think, you know, my um, immigrant background kind of gives me a sense of, you know, I am willing to do what's needed. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to a lot of new ideas, but I, and and obviously there's all kinds of work ethic and, and experiences that come from growing up like that. But it's really, I think, convergence of, of, you know, my skills, but really the opportunities and the places that I'm drawn to, you know, because there's a reason I stayed at Sci-Fi for six years, even though I walked in saying I was only going to stay two. Yeah, you were very clear on that. Yes, <laughs> yes, you were. You made sort of two observations in this in this blog post that I found interesting, sort of leading up to joining the firm. One was you made a decision not to go to law school. And you describe it in retrospect as you didn't want to be an indentured servant, I think was the term. You used <laughs> drawing from having worked for your parents for all those years. A historical story of selling the, what yes. was it, socks in the... Yes, in yes. The, yes. Yet you still then made the second decision to go into the business of law. So there must have been something about the legal profession, other than your father wanting you to be a lawyer, that sort of that sort of connected with you at some point that led you that led you to join us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think when I say I didn't want an indentured life, I think that I'm talking about kind of planning horizons and you know the length of time that you have to commit to something where you are essentially pot committed because of the investments you make. And a lot of the lawyers that I worked with and worked for, they were always kind of thinking about leaving once they had paid off the loan, once they kind of had, you know, got their kids through college. And there were a lot of people who felt constrained um, to continue in their their current track. Of course, later I found out that's that's not unique to lawyers, but I did observe a lot of that. And I think that you know, something interesting I'll throw out for all the the law students and, and lawyers who might be thinking about their own career tracks here. The one thing I did not like is how the success factors would change over time. I, I actually felt like I would do pretty well as an associate. I would, you know, do what was needed to kind of develop as a practitioner and, and make partner. But then I really also felt like, well, the success factors for partners are different because the commercial side of the business, you know, I, I didn't think would be a good fit for me to, you know, what what I would need to do to become like a rainmaker or, you know, be a successful kind of relationship partner for clients that that didn't appeal to me. And then so the whole pathway was just not not attractive. But in terms of the industry and business, I, I really felt like there was going to be a lot of opportunity, a lot of opportunity for lawyers, legal teams, legal businesses to, to think about how they operate differently. And at that time, I knew I was good. I knew I was good at that piece of it, like the operations, creating efficiencies and process and, and better understanding how, you know, teams and, and you know, departments could run better. And that's why I came to Cyforth, because everybody I talked to, 
during the interview process was very open to, you know, efficiency improvements, doing things better. That was a big theme in, in everybody I talked to. And I felt like it would have been, it would be a good fit uh, for the kind of work I wanted to do. And of course, that turned out to, to be the case. So one of the things that I think is interesting, uh, Jay, is one of your many skill sets is the ability to look at data, to look at information, distill it, quantify it, communicate it either visually or, or verbally or in writing in a way that's understandable for the, uh, for the consumer of the information. I mean, you're able to pull insights out of information that are, in retrospect, I, I find myself going, good Lord, how did, I, how did I not see that myself? But you're able to pull those insights out. Yeah, I guess I don't know your background in college. I don't perceive you to have a statistics background or a formal training of data. I know you taught yourself PowerPoint to learn to create these beautiful visualizations. How did you sort of amass those skills and hone those skills that have allowed you to be so incredibly successful at what you do? Yeah, I think the short answer is rather than focus too much on skill sets I could list on a resume, I think I picked up the skills I needed for whatever problem I was trying to solve. So I think that that's slightly a more functional view of skills because a lot of young professionals and I feel I feel for lawyers, the young associates who are for who are doing this now and you remember you know, back when we were talking about associate training, I was very, very on the, they must learn Excel. Kind yes, of I do remember that. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now I have a slightly different viewpoint because, you know, having gone through three years of professional training, I, I think it's very tough for associates to hear that they have to go to like skills training for all these new things without a clear use case without being told how, when, and, and why they're going to need those skills. And that that's not a great, you know, kind of sales pitch to young associates. And so I think really connecting the skills to the problem is important. For me, um, you know, my, my background in college, a lot of folks are surprised, but I, I was a history major, which served me well in other respects, I think. I think the storytelling bit really comes from uh, my history background. Mm, the data stuff, sense. yeah. The data stuff I picked up and I have a shocking confession to make. Um, I'm not like a mathematician at heart. Um, I have many friends who actually specialize in applied mathematics in, in college. Um, my college roommate is actually uh, the, the senior data scientist at Figma now. She had that role at Uber. So for her to watch me, you know, do work in, in analytics and, and legal, um, you know, it, it's funny because she's heard me complain for years about how I don't even really like math. But the data stuff, the insights work really, I think goes back to what you were saying, Steve, about, you know, I'm, I'm always focused on the audience, making things explainable and understandable. And then I think because I try to exercise that empathy, like what would the partners want to know? Right. And when we right. did that, the communications work at, at Cypherth and everything is really um, about the audience, right? Whether it's a partner meeting this year's financials or next year's plans or where the industry is going, it's really that orientation of, you know, how does this affect me? And, and trying to kind of look at 
things from the partner perspective and then later with clients, the same thing. You know, what what would clients want to know about the performance of, of a certain portfolio or, or tranche of work that they give to a firm and really trying to understand what the, the critical questions are and by asking better questions and then I guess having the, um, you know, uh, stamina <laughs> to go through the soul crushing work of going through the data. I think that part probably gave me the data skills because, you know, once I had helped you with one of the partner meetings, I did not want to do that much work ever again. And then so I would look yes, for I remember that as well. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, make a, you make an interesting point, which is looking at it from what does the consumer, the information want to know, need to know. I think is, is from our prior conversations, I know you know this, uh, that's got to be one, that's one of the challenges of, of dealing with lawyers is they don't necessarily think about it from the consumer, the information standpoint, the client standpoint, the other people standpoint. They're thinking what they want to communicate as opposed to what the client or the potential client wants to hear or needs to hear. Have you encountered that? I assume you've encountered that as have I over your years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think um, you'll you'll uh, remember many, many examples of this. Um, and I wasn't always so good at it because often, you know, you are the one saying, well, they that they don't need to know that that's not that's not critical to their understanding. That's not relevant to them. And I always want to kind of overload, you know, your talks with um, interesting information like, no, I think it's really important. So I, I really think um, it's not a lawyer issue. I think in every field where, um, you know, it's really knowledge and expertise. That's part of the value proposition where you have highly skilled folks trying to explain complex things to a um, audience. Uh, audience of lay people, I think you see that all the time. I mean, scientific papers are, are not accessible. Um, even like kind of pop culture science, you know, literature is, is not always very audience centric. A lot of it is, you know, author centric. And then so I think that that's not unique to lawyers. We see it a lot because we live among lawyers. Um, but yeah, I think um, you see it now as the allied professional communities and legal are maturing, you see some of those tendencies with, you know, um, the pricing community, for example, there's a lot of technicals around legal services pricing that really line partners don't need to know. Um, and, right. and distilling that down to the bits that partners would find useful is, I think, an important uh, mark of effectiveness in a pricing professional. So I think you see that all the time and even with process or especially in technology especially in legal technology, um, you know, how the technology works is not very relevant to the users, the end users of the technology. They it's have to trust that. At all. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, talk, I see it all the time. Yeah. You, uh, you, you, you talked about the community of allied professionals and obviously you're at the top of that community, but talk a little bit about some of the challenges allied professionals have in working at a law firm. You, you made an observation in this most recent article you wrote about how on the one hand, sometimes you felt, I can't remember the exact term you used. You didn't use soul crushing, I don't think, but you <laughs> talked about the challenges of, of working with lawyers without 
being a lawyer, but then the community side of it, of the support you've gotten from lawyers. Sort of what are the markers for success for someone who wants to follow a similar path that you've created, or whether it's in pricing or whether it's in tech, who's not a lawyer but wants to work in the legal profession? First of all, I think, um, you know, something that I have learned during and during my time at Cyborg and after, but I didn't, you know, really clearly understand it well enough to articulate it is, is the importance of community. I think that allied professionals really thrived at Cyborg because there were communities, there were teams and, and support structures within the firm. And I would really kind of you know, call out the the house that Kim Craig built and the culture that she helped build, you know, among the the legal project managers and of course Andrew Baker and all the the great work he did around legal technology. But there was a big group of peers that were not practitioners that you could um, you know, go to for for support or guidance. And often that's missing because one of the reasons that change scales slowly in our industry is that that hard work of cultural change and, and kind of emotional acceptance that that you know the future of the industry may not look exactly like the industry today i think that work has to be done within every organization and the the first you know two to three people at, within each firm um you know don't have that support structure that we did that i was fortunate enough to walk into um and then so i think Building different types of communities, you know, however amorphous across the industry, really important. I don't like the word networking anymore because it, it's so inadequate to describe what's needed. Um, friends, you need friends and peers and kind of uh, fellow travelers who really understand, you know, the challenges that you face, who have experienced some of the similar constraints, see some of the same opportunities. And I think Joe Borstein put it, best when he he was trying to describe like why a lot of us are such good friends. It's because we see both the pain and the promise of the industry. And then so having that shared ethos, I think is really important. So I encourage, you know, allied professionals or even, you know, current practitioners who are thinking about a different path. I really encourage them to, to leave the four walls metaphorically now of their organization and, and meet people who are doing the similar similar not only similar work but you know feel similarly <laughs> to how you're feeling about the industry yeah yeah i mean we've seen a clear trend you you mentioned it we've seen a clear trend over the last few years to the increased use of allied professionals in the industry whether it's legal operations legal technologists uh, I, I assume in your you're looking at the industry you're seeing similar Trend lines, is it making a difference in the way firms succeed and operate and serve their clients? Yeah, absolutely. Abs I can't, it, I don't think that it's possible to overstate the impact of having, you know, what we used to call the, the cross-functional team, right? Like the multidisciplinary team of the future. And we talked about that as early on as I think 2013, 2014. Right. You see that not only on the firm side, but certainly on the client side. And I think if you look at what clients are doing, that, that should give a pretty good preview of what the industry ought to look like very soon, because clients are telling us not with their words, but you know, they're voting with their feet, they're voting with their dollars. 
in, in how they want to work, they how they want to work internally and how they want to work with their, you know, supply chains. And I think that very successful law departments and very successful law firms have been more porous, I think, in their boundaries in, in allowing new skills, new uh, capabilities, new competencies, new knowledge bases to actually really collide and integrate with legal expertise in interesting ways. So I think that, you know, you look across the industry, there are uh, lots of positions and roles that, you know, don't really get a lot of press. But, um, you know, statisticians have had a role in legal work and in various, you know, uh, tranches of work for many, many years without really people talking about it. Um, You know, I think with that, the increasing emphasis on the importance of analytics, and big data, you're going to see more and more of that in interesting applications, um, not only on the operations side, but really how we measure and manage legal risk across the entire legal supply chain. So I think it's incredibly important to, to make sure that we're surrounding legal practitioners with other more new and different skill sets that clients already need and are going to need more of in, in future. One of the uh things you posit in some of the other series of articles you've written on on Bill's blog is that the rising challenges from ALSPs or as Mark Cohen refers to them, enterprise legal providers, whatever the term is you use, is uh, one of the, is the, is a larger threat than the big four. For example, if I read your post correctly, it's because it's not because the big four has less skill sets or diversity of of skills. It's just how committed are they to the legal market in the great scheme of things. But one of the strengths, it seems to me, that these organizations, whether it's big four, ALSPs bring, is this grouping of professional skills that starting from scratch, you you describe it as fit for purpose, which I think is a which is which is a good description. They're built around the way you're talking about. Uh, can you sort of take that to the next level of how you see that evolving in the market? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, almost everything that I see in the industry, I can trace back to like a specific meeting or a project at Cyforth when I first, you know, encountered the concepts. So I have lots of flashbacks, but I think that when... Hopefully they're good flashbacks, Jay, and they're not... <laughs> They're not most bad trips. Them, <laughs> most of them, Steve, they're, most of them are good. Um, so this phrase fit for purpose, I think, is is really important to, to highlight. Um, so thank you for calling that out. Because, you know, I think even, even with the best of intentions and some of the more mature and better executed efforts in the big law segment to, to really change the way uh, services are delivered, like the way they're packaged, the the way um, teams actually dispose of the work. These new skills, whether it's process improvement, whether it's legal project management, whether it's actually adoption of integration of, of new technologies, they tend to be bolt on changes. It's very difficult, I think, to get a, a large team of legal practitioners to rethink from the ground up how they do their work, right? And then with mm-hmm. you know some of the small wins. Uh, earlier wins that that law firms are pursuing, perhaps some of the firms that are later on um, in in adopting some of these new ideas, and then so they're playing catch up. Um, you can't skip that change management work, right? You can't skip the work of working with the partners to kind of think 
more more receptively to a different way of doing things. And then so the the difference between um, using technology, for example, as a bolt-on or, or project management as a bolt-on versus kind of really looking at a mandate, looking at a tranche of work and then designing a team that's that's going to work completely differently, look at the problem differently, reframe the challenge and and really see new opportunities to create value. I mean, I think that the advantages that newcomers have, the the insurgent providers have in that regard, I think is going to be insurmountable in some segments of the industry. Of course, there's always tranches of work that are relatively more protected because of the legal complexity, the complex technical complexity of the legal issues involved require going to um you know, kind of top of market, best of breed advisors in that area. But there's lots and lots of, uh, you know, needs that corporate clients have right now where complexity arises in in different ways. It's not really the complexity of the legal questions involved. Um, A lot of it will be complexity that, that hits the execution part. So whether it's political complexity, whether it's, you know, the number of touch points across the enterprise required, let's say, to to manage contracts differently. Contracts is is a perfect example where there's, you know, low to mid legal complexity, but there's immense scale complexity. There's immense political complexity. There's immense social complexity in, in driving change because that's an area where the client enterprise has to think differently about the way they make and spend money, right? So I think, right. um, yeah, breaking apart complexity and assigning it to different, I think, flavors of, of technical expertise, different flavors of capabilities that service providers have to bring, that's the thinking that is new and different among the ALSPs. Well, they certainly seem to be being rewarded both by growth in terms of revenue as well as by outside investment. I mean, what was it? United Lex brought in a half a billion dollar investment tranche. So smart people out there are seeing opportunities. Uh, And with that kind of investment level, that's... Yeah, I, I think that's definitely an encouraging signal. The fact that, you know, investors see a lot of potential in in the industry, but I would really actually raise an unpopular opinion. And I I have written a lot about investment trends into the space, but it's important to remember that investors can't can't look at the incumbent players as as investment targets. Right. They're locked out of a huge part of, of the industry. And then so there is, I think, an artificial governor and and kind of um, forces that direct capital flow to specific areas um, where they can go right so I think I think it's important to kind of interpret investment trends through that lens um, and to remember that you know that money doesn't come for free the investors expect a certain rate of return many multiples in fact so that that does define I think, goals and objectives, growth, as well as, you know, the, the way they perform, the way they manage costs, um, the way they manage their go-to-market. So I think, you know, there's a lot of interesting nuance to that, but absolutely, it's it's a thrilling time for the industry. Yeah. And how do you see, if you're, you'll be advising incumbent law firms as to how to, re- in this marketplace, and if you look at it, there's, there's different ways law firms have responded there. Some ignore it. 
Some rely on their position in the market as saying we're we're immune to this, down to some trying to build their own ALSPs. Yeah. Is there a particular guidance you give incumbent law firms of how to respond to this? I mean, everybody's going to be a little different. Everybody's going to be unique, but sort of are there themes you hit? Yeah, absolutely. I would say consider your current position. Position is not destiny, but it is certainly one endpoint on, on a line, right? So in, in order to kind of set manageable, ambitious, but achievable goals for how you want to do business in five to 10 years, I, I think that has to be anchored to um, a realistic sense of the current market position. And by current market position, I'm really talking about things like the composition of the client base, the the makeup of the practice mix, right? Really, what levels of legal complexity are you handling? And then what's your capacity to help clients contend with different kinds of complexity, right? So I think really understanding where you're playing now and how you've succeeded in the past, how you're succeeding now, I think those questions are paramount to formulating I think testable hypotheses about where you're going to play, how you're going to win in future, and what capabilities are going to be required to actually execute on, on, on those theories. So I think having really good, deep understanding of the current business, and, and I think this is actually an important point where I, I want to make sure I, I'm clear about the fact that I, I believe equity partners, by and large, actually have very good understanding of their own business. But that that their field of vision tends to be just one slice in, in the composition of the firm's business. And it's just incredibly difficult for a successful equity partner to really have a in a field of vision to understand the position, the competitive position of the entire firm. So building that kind of cohesive vision of, of the future is, has to start with building a coherent, um, you know, kind of visibility over over the current state. So that that would be the general advice I give to the incumbent firms. And as you sort of look at these accelerating trends, as the pandemic has accelerated some and has held others, what trends do you see continuing to accelerate? What, what's sticky about this particular economic challenge we're in? Because at the last, the global financial crisis accelerated some trends, some stuck, some didn't. Yeah, so I think if necessity is the mother of invention, I think pressure might be the mother of adoption. So I think one thing that's going to stick with us for a long time is um, all these tropes and narratives around, you know, that's never going to happen in legal. You're never going to get lawyers to do X, Y, and Z. I think we've uh, soundly proven that that's not the case. When there's necessity and pressure, we can, lawyers can work Virtually, lawyers can, you know, figure out video conferencing. You can actually have a meaningful uh, dialogue with clients without physically being there. Now, I think we're going to have to rebalance what what works optimally, situationally, and and with context. When is a um, in person meeting necessary? When are different modes of communication appropriate? Um, but I think essentially what's uh, been sped up in the pandemic is the digitalization of the way lawyers work with each other with with clients and one thing i'm hoping will stick is is a faster shift toward digitalization in the public courts 
So the public, you know, kind of uh, slice of the industry where, where government institutions and, you know, public resources come into play and kind of muck up any, any efficiency drives that are system-wide, I think that is going to stick. We're going to see faster change in that area. And I think that really, um, you know, clients are probably headed into a sustained period of, of austerity. I, I call it the new austerity. I think it's going to look and feel a little different from the post-Great Recession push for cheaper. I think they are really going to be looking for meaningful change in the means of production for legal work. I think that's going to stick around. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a brave new world. Yeah, well, let's hope so. And there's nobody better to sort of look at it and comment and analyze it than you, Jay. It's been great Thank having you. you today. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I, I think there's no one better to probe my journey and, and all the amazing opportunities I've been given because it really all started with you. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, you've done some great work. So kudos. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.